This is a Stand Up New York Labs production, providing you podcasts since 2013. This week's episode of X-Ray brought to you by my mom, Phelan Casper White. Phelan and I have had a rocky relationship ever since she asked me to carry her child with her boyfriend, Rocco, who claims he's a chef, but I'm telling you right now, the man can't dice tomatoes for shit. Phelan is trying to get back into my life and make up for lost time, trauma, and plenty of desperate sexual interludes that I engaged in to fill the void and my need for connection. But guess what, Mom? It worked. Sex does heal. So thank you for the 500 bucks, and no, I will not carry your baby. So just go eat some of Rocco's overcooked eggs and soggy bacon. I have a show to do. Everybody, Raylan Casper White here with this week's episode of X-Ray. Uh, this week, I decided to go a little brainier uh, in several uh, meanings of the word. Uh, I, you know, I've been talking to artists and various icons and, and doctors, but now I'm here with a brain scientist. You heard me right. I have the illustrious moron. Not sorry, that came out wrong. Moron, right? Do you get that a lot? You get moron, like Americans can't handle fucking foreign names? Dr. Surf for you. Dr. Surf. Okay, so moron surf, it's not surf like surfer dude. It's C-E-R-F, correct? What is it, Hungarian? What is that? It's a French. It's French. Moron surf. Uh, he is a neuroscientist and a neuroeconomist, which just means how do we milk the brain for money, uh, be part of that capitalistic project. Uh, and I'm excited. Thank you for coming, first of all. It's a pleasure. Oh, I love it. I love it. Um, I've watched your TED Talks. You're brilliant. Hard to fucking understand. You talk, a, I thought I'd talk fast. You talk a mile a fucking minute. Yeah, I just finished this entire show already. Yeah, you did. You're <laughs> done, right? And you have a heavy, it's an Israeli accent. Yes. Um, so you roll your R, right? You roll your R's. Um, it's a French Israeli on double speed. Double speed. Wow. Yes. It's like French Middle Eastern on crack. Mm. Uh, but the TED people like your videos are very popular. I'm conf- before I'm conflicted about TED. Can I talk about TED for just one minute? I know Please. that they, you know, they they help people, and it's like information and the nugget for this day, you know, this day and age of ADHD. But it also feels like it dilutes a lot of stuff, and it, it, people, even scientists, feel a need to like make their stuff entertaining and condense. And it it seems like you're not getting the full picture. You know, that's a problem in today's society in general. Don't you agree? Absolutely, that's a problem, and you can't do without it because it's now a commodity. You have to have a TED talk if. You want to be a good scientist, but it's really, really hard. Really? So it helps you in your, like, getting published and stuff? If you have, like, a viral video on TED? I think my most cited academic paper has 380 citations. My TED Talk had a million viewers. So if you want to get the message out, you have to do it in a way that gets the audience. And that's the way. What does citation mean? Like, what? Scientists who use my work to build on top of that some other work, and that's kind of required. Okay, okay. Now, you study the brain. Uh, and what, like, give me, like, I, I know you study, you, I read, I heard your TED, let me talk, let me say that fucking thing, I'm stutting around here. I'm intimidated by you. Uh, you had a talk about free will, mm-hmm. and one about dreams, and then I heard another one about human version 2.0, and then another one about engagement. Yeah. Um, which is something I worry about when I'm like, please don't tune out, people. <laughs> keep listening to the end. Like, how do you keep people engaged? Uh, let's. What do you want to start with? Let's talk about human 2.0. Human, okay, humans 2.0. Yes. Okay, so improving humans as people as what? So the point there is that evolution is pretty slow. And if we talk about making a human have wings, it's going to take millions of years, probably not in our lifetime. And the question is, can we speed up things because we now understand everything? And the answer is yes. We can actually build wings. We know the mechanics of them. And we can now plug them into a human brain and have the brain do its magic, which is learn how to control them so that within your lifetime, you can actually learn to fly like a bird. 
what, hold, hold the role here. You talking about like adding wings as an appendage to somebody's body and then connecting neurons to control that appendage? That's the idea. The idea is that the brain is really great in learning how to speak the language of devices that we plug into it. So we plug wings, we plug uh, the car's dials, we plug anything that we can read into the brain and the brain will within months learn how to control those things. Well, how do you, pl how do you plug in? What does that even mean? So there's so far some trials with animals, but it's not surprising because we did it with humans as well in the realm of uh, hearing. So a person who lost their hearing, right. who was hearing before and then lost it, became deaf, we can now plug a device we call the cochlear implant. It's a device that basically replicates the way the ears work into his brain. So this device learns how to take molecular vibrations in the air and turn them into the language of the brain. And then it just speaks to the brain in its language, which is basically electrochemical signals. And the brain just learns to interpret that. So a person who was deaf within seven months learns to hear. So you put the actual device in the brain? Mm -hmm. One side in the brain, one side outside that speaks to molecular vibrations. And it touches the, what, the cortex? So the way we did it right now with the cochlear implants is actually easier. We just plug it into the ear canal. So if you want, if you talk about the ear, in the ear there's like a little eardrum and there's a right. little bit of a device that kind of turns, we call it Fourier transform, but in simple word, it takes molecular vibrations and turns them into frequencies. He just said molecular vibrations. I'm just going to be a translator <laughs> here. Slow it down. Molecular vibrations. I have a lot of southern <laughs> listeners, okay? It's challenging <laughs> enough as is. Molecular vibrations. There yes. you go. It sounds sensual. So we, we do this transformation. We just plug a little wire straight to the place in the ear where you know how to hear and the, that's it the brain learns how to adjust to that we do the same thing with the eyes we do it right. with many things that's amazing so how do you okay so i know that let me break it down for the the people that are not as well versed we we have neurons right we got these cells in the brain that are sending these 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 electrochemical signals but we still don't understand you know what I mean? Like, we don't still get, we get the signal, but we don't get what's beyond that. Absolutely. So the magic here is that what we learned in the last couple of years when we started plugging stuff to the brain and looking at it, is that the brain does a magic thing, which is it learns how to speak to you. You don't have to work on learning how to speak to the brain. The brain will do the magic for you. Oh, I love that. So here's an example. Um, we take a baby. A baby that's born. You're just taking a baby? Do you people a baby. pay you, do you pay these people's <laughs> you baby have you're plenty, taking? Right? Like we can spare I one. mean, yeah, I have, a, I have a couple I'm willing to volunteer. <laughs> so you take a baby, it's just born, he doesn't know how to see or how to hear or how to smell. He has a brain that's kind of adaptive, like a sponge. And then you blast the baby's eyes with photons, with images from the world. And at first the baby doesn't really see anything because its brain doesn't know how to interpret those signals. But over the course of a few weeks, the baby's brain says, okay, I'm getting those signals into my retina and they seem to mean something because every time I get this signal, milk comes. And every time I get this signal, a sound that's soothing comes. So I guess I'm going to create some brain areas that will interpret this sound better, faster, and more reasonable way. And we call this seeing. So it takes about a few weeks, months for a baby to learn to see. And that's its brain learning how to interpret sounds or signals coming into the eyes. And this doesn't stop when you're a baby. It could go on even when you're an adult. But you're talking more about like the Pavlov, like the psychological response of like, mm -hmm. what can I do to get the result I want? So it's mm -hmm. not just interpreting. So... Because when you're seeing something, is the actual image like burned into a part of the brain? Like, you know what I mean? Like a mirror? Or is it the signal? Like, how the fuck? Do we know how the fuck that works? So a photon. A photon. Hits your Not retina. a futon. I hate fucking futons. <laughs> most uncomfortable mattress on the planet. <laughs> uh, uh, a ray, a, a little particle of light. Okay. That carries color and a frequency. Right. Hits your retina. And mm -hmm. let's say this frequency is equivalent to the color red. Okay. So it hits your retina and it kind of binds to a little neuron 
in your eye. And what this neuron does is send a signal into the back of your brain. And when this signal comes to the back of your brain, the brain says, okay, I guess I'm going to call this the color red. Okay. And then another one comes and it's the color blue. Another one is the color green. And at some point, your brain gets enough of them and it says, okay, I have a variety of colors. Let's try to see in which order they came and where they go. And it, maybe they are a majority blue. So uh, I'm going to call this the sky. And maybe they're mostly green. I'm going to try to call this a tree. And gradually you learn over your life how to uh, put the meaning in signals that come and just hit your retina. And do you, so let me ask you a question. I know that some of the times you, your research involves um, testing people on their, you cut their head open like a coconut, <laughs> right? And you're actually touching the brain with what, like a tweezer man? Or what do you, t like a cotton swab? What do you touch, like what do you? So we put little micro wires, which is basically electrical and wires. you can't feel that, right? The brain has no sense on it. Exactly. You, you I can massage it. somebody's brain. They'd be like, you won't know. Feel like, I don't feel shit. Yeah. Okay. So what we do is we work with patients. Those are people who have some brain disorder that requires brain surgery. Those are rare, but there's enough of them to actually allow for research. Do they get paid extra or they don't they even do sign not. a release? They're like, oh, they're brain dead. They won't <laughs> give a shit anyway. I think that they're uh, coming because they are going to get fixed. They have a problem and they know that someone's going to fix their problem. So that's the reason that they're there. Okay. And they're willing to volunteer some extra love. Okay. They extra say brain material. Okay. Exactly right. So they come and they say, I have an epilepsy and I want to be fixed. And we tell them for the epilepsy to be fixed, we need to figure out where the source is and what's Right. Kind of in the location. meantime, let's test you for exactly your arousal when you watch <laughs> Swedish porn. Right? Exactly right. Okay. So we say, okay, okay. you're gonna have your op your brain open so I can figure out where the epilepsy onset is. We're gonna put electrodes inside your head, and we're gonna connect them to a computer so we can look at your brain all the time and see what's going on right. there when you have a seizure. And while you wait to have a seizure, it could be hours, days, maybe weeks. So they're weeks. just hanging out waiting for a seizure? I would feel bad not having a seizure. Do you know what <laughs> I mean? I'm like, my head's open and people are waiting. Let me fucking have a seizure. They're really making an effort. But I think the, the point of seizures is that yeah, they're spontaneous, like an earthquake. Well, give them a strobe light. Doesn't that do seizures? Uh, hit him with some strobe? It could work, deep but we're trying to get the seizure to be as natural as possible okay. so we can actually I'm figure out what's It's like erections. I hate Viagra. I hate Cialis. Like, you know what I mean? If you're going to get a boner, get it. If you're not going to get it, move on. I, 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 Are you with me? On, I mean, we'll talk about your boners later. But okay, <laughs> keep going. I'm trying to keep this professional. For so a we wait for their uh, uh, earthquake in the brain to right. emerge, and this could take days, weeks, and while we're waiting, we just say, hey, you're going to be here for the next week looking at movies and reading books while we wait right. to have a seizure. Do you mind, since I have electrodes in your brain, also letting me ask you why you want this or that? Why mm -hmm. you love this person or that person? How do you respond to this music? And actually look at the brain from the inside. With the electrodes connected? Yes. Okay. And But you're, what you're looking at is pretty much just activity. Yeah. Right? It's pretty much a straightforward correlation. Like, when we do this, this is active. There's more active, like yeah. the MRIs, right, with the colors. Like, this is active. But that's it. Like, mm -hmm. we can't, we haven't gotten deeper than that. But it, it's a lot. So, so yes, okay. we haven't okay. gotten deeper. Is but it a lot, though, considering how complex the brain is? It's, it's far from uh, where we want to be. Right. But it's really impressive because we can, in the morning, show you a picture of your mom and see one cell in your brain lighting up. Mom cell, you. not fucking Phelan Casper White trying to delete that <laughs> cell. So there's a cell for your mom and there's a right. cell for your dad and there's a cell for your daughter and your son and your house. And there's a lot of cells. And if we show you the right picture. That one cell? To, Just one cell? It's usually like one a neuron? cluster of a few of them, okay. about 5 million for oh, each that's, concept. That's peanuts. But we find one of them. So we actually find a cell wow. that is 100% Aligned with, yes, with okay. this concept. So we find the mom cell and the dad cell and the mom's uh, okay. friend cell and so on. Once we found those, when you're awake, we can do anything. We can trigger the cell and you're going to say, hey, I'm thinking about my mom right now. Or we can... You can touch it and be like, I'm thinking about my mom. You would feel that. Now, what if I wanted... Remember that movie with, with Jim Carrey? What the fuck was that movie called? 
spotless mind. Yes, it's so if sunshine. I have trauma, like mm-hmm. Fei Lin abused me, okay, for many years, and it's fucked me up for life, is there any way to obliterate that cluster of mom cells, or is that going to affect my memory in other areas or leak? There is, but it's not the way that we imagine right now. So we can't just take out, you know, scoop a few cells, scoop, right. and, and you're going to forget who your mom is, because your mom is spread over many, many yeah, cells. It's is. really hard to figure out. But there are ways that we... Uh, using right now to actually erase memories that are uh, using some other uniquely kind of feature of memories. You can erase memories. It's done mostly with rats and mice right now. Where what kind of memories do they have? Mostly maze. They remember how to get it's from one to another. Them are the fucking mazes. <laughs> you know, they're also like enough with the maze, enough with the cheese, enough giving me cocaine and seeing if I run on a wheel. Like <laughs> give me something different. So I think they, they with, with the mice, what they do is they actually make them remember something and then they give them some drug that makes them not be able to re- save the memory, so they load it once and try to save it, but it doesn't get saved, and that's it. It's lost. Okay, but that's not memories that have been etched in our brain for like a million years, because you're it saying too be. many connections. It's too complicated. No, it could be. So, so, so if I asked you right now to uh, conjure the memory of your first boyfriend, right? you load it, and you basically load it from all over the place. Right. So it's right now floating in your head. If I give you the drug right now, you will stop using memory and try to save it. It will actually stop the saving, and you will lose it. I would lose all the memory of the first boyfriend. Really? Yeah. Wait, this is wor- this is happening right now. Is that the goal? It's it's happening with mice and rats. Wow, that's what I'm saying. Though when a memory is much more complex than humans, it mm-hmm. seems like it's a little you know the 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 web of connections because it's not only just memories, right? It's like emotional triggers. It's the limbic system. Am I right? So the magic here is that you will load the memory of your boyfriend and you will load everything. So if I tell you, think of your boyfriend, you will load it. Oh, so the minute of loading, right. You will load it regularly and then I can put a drug and then you won't be able to save it anymore and it's going to be lost in the ether of your brain. Now, okay, so... I know that's going to be abused at some point, right? I mean, yes. people are going because anything, people abuse anything. People keep wanting to improve their lives and pop drugs to control brain chemistry. Um, I don't judge it. Well, I do judge. Get, <laughs> get, you know what I mean? Work your shit out. You know what I mean? All these people in the United States and all these antidepressants, then they're not doing the work. It's like I changed, I started taking Lexapro. It's changed my life. I'm like, okay, but really has it? I don't know. Maybe I'm being too judgmental. I, I think you're right. I think, I think we're uh, definitely the belief among scientists is that it will be abused. So the history shows us that every time we find something that is remarkable, someone finds a way to use it in a bad way. It's true for the steam engine that's used to you know, move trains from California to New York and right. with it uh, I help. like trains. And at the same time, it's used to move Jews from uh, oh Berlin boy. to... Yeah. You guys <laughs> always with the Holocaust, right? Every time, just bring, looking for an excuse to bring up the Holocaust, right? Trains was an example. Fair uh, enough, you're nuclear, right. okay. nuclear power is an example. Yes, yes, uh, yes. Anything that we find that's remarkable can also be used badly, and history shows that it's going right. to be used badly. I mean, it could help trauma, but again, also trauma creates who we are. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to say, oh, you know, God forbid you're abused as a kid, you end up becoming a serial killer, but I think that, you know, artists, right? I mean, we mm-hmm. wouldn't have, with all these, like, drug-addled jazz musicians, I, we wouldn't have all, you know, these heroin, like, where would everybody yeah. be? We wouldn't have any music or culture, art, or... You gotta be the meaning up. of good memories is only given by the bad ones. That's it kind of creates a scale. Yeah. What do you think about? Um, so let me go. Uh, something I've I've been meditating. I've been I'm part of the mindfulness movement. Yeah. I've been mindful way before it became hip. You know what I mean? Um, one thing I've always been amazed at is because I do believe in kind of a higher power. I'm not. You know what I mean? Of course, Jesus Christ, our Savior. But beyond that, I believe there are many ways to climb the mountain. How do we, what is that that sees the brain? Do you know what I mean? Like when I'm thinking and then I'm thinking, oh, look, 
I'm being sad now. I'm thinking, I believe that has to be something outside of the body. There has to be a bigger spirit or soul. Is there a scientific explanation for being outside the brain when you're in the brain? So you're going to find it lame, but there are a few. Uh, okay. One of them is... With our patients, there's actually studies that show that you can kind of zap their brain in a specific location and they immediately claim that there's someone behind them. They really feel that there's someone behind them, like another person that their eyes can't find this person. It's wow. not in the room, but immediately they have a sense that someone is in the room with them. So there's a part of your brain that if you just trigger it, you will feel that someone else is there with you. So that's kind of a lame answer, but it's mechanical. Okay. There is a kind Kills of, my spirituality. Yeah, okay. A higher kind of more uh, nuanced one. There's a uh, professor at Madison, Wisconsin University who's... Madison. I just mentioned Lo Ladies Rotary Club of Madison, Wisconsin. That's funny. That's the guy. <laughs> <laughs> Runs the club. So he's studied a lot of like spiritual people, including Dalai Lama and Buddhist monks. And he found that if you look at their brain, there's asymmetry between the front, left, and right hemispheres that suggests that actually they are happier than most of us. The happiest person in the world, this guy, Mathieu Ricard, is a Buddhist monk that he found, and his brain is really asymmetrical in the sense that there's a lot more activity on the right than on the left, and it suggests that this guy is actually the happiest person on earth. Why? Is the left side not a ha the happy side? The right side's the happy side? In theory, symmetry is the best. Oh, for, interesting. Okay. And, and there's kind of a claim that uh, there's asymmetry in the what's called frontal asymmetry that suggests the approach versus avoidance. You you want more of the world if there's asymmetry towards the right, as in more activity on the right, and uh, avoidance, you kind of are more you know, secluded and you want to be more alone and removed from the world if there's asymmetry where the left is stronger. That's but what if you're happy with being a hermit? So there's actually now claims about that. So so the fact that this guy, the happiest guy in I've the world... I've heard about Matthew Ricard. I've heard his videos. He's right? like a nice-looking guy, and he became a monk. Yeah. He's yeah. not getting French laid guy. anymore. How happy can you be? I'm just yeah. saying. A French guy who uh, was a biologist became a Buddhist monk and okay. now claims to be happy and also shows this uh, remarkable asymmetry in his frontal lobe okay. that suggests that maybe there's something to practicing happiness that makes your brain change. Well, I know that like positive affirmations, you can reprogram your brain, I guess, mm -hmm. what is it, more serotonin floating around, more dopamine? So, so serotonin is going to give you a boost of happiness that's going to be kind of short-term, but hyper-happiness and also general love and, uh, and okay. feeling of compassion. This guy has a more systemic and kind of long-term uh, feeling of compassion. And the, the way he says it is uh, he feels like positive thoughts float all over him. Oh, God. Yeah. I want to smack that guy in the <laughs> face. But so what does that have to do with um, the being outside of yourself? So I think that generally scientists right now are looking at this happiness version, at this guy who feels that there's someone else there. There's even a, a scientist who looks at what's called the God area in the brain, which is a part of the brain that lights up when you uh, think about God or mm -hmm. uh, feeling spiritual or even see beautiful pictures like the Mona Lisa or the Sistine Chapel or big churches. And they're all kind of inducing the feeling of awe. And in that sense, this part lights up. But that's not what you want. What you want is like to find the part of the brain that speaks to you know the higher powers. We have not found those. And so far, science is not doing a good job in anything that has to do with spiritual stuff. Well, they hate it, right? You guys yeah. hate, like, I mean, are you a religious person at all? Not at all. You don't believe God exists? No. No higher power? I mean, I believe it exists in the sense that we invented something that allows us to live happy life, but it's not that there's someone in a cloud. But I mean, okay, so let me ask you a question, because I get evolution explains a lot of shit, but the brain is so fucking complex. Is it possible that the brain has evolved? How long we've been around? How long humans been around? Humans, well, it depends on the kind of... The I mean, humans, I'll say apes. I mean, whatever. 100,000 years. 100,000 years of this version That's it, 100,000? It's yeah. only been around for 100,000 years, yeah. right? Yeah. So, I mean, how, is, how could the brain have evolved? Because you see how slow it takes for fucking anything to evolve. How could the brain have become what ha it has become? Well, first of all, it's speeding up, unfortunately. It's what? It's speeding up. It's the, speeding up? What's yeah. speeding up? Like the changes in the brain. Uh, in your lifetime, you probably have different brain uh, that 
the one you had when you were born. We well, now, I hope so. We now have all kinds of studies that show that our brains change now much faster than, than they ever had before. That's but that, one those changes don't change when I give birth, right? I mean, that's not the kind of evolutionary change that no. goes from generation to generation. That's something that no. happens in my lifetime. Yeah. So the brain is for that. The brain's purpose, if you want, is to be the one thing in your body that keeps changing over your course of lifetime. Like the genes are kind of set. Okay. And the brain is what nature gave you to adapt to the world changing around you. But it used to be a slower process. Now it's much faster. Like in a person's lifetime, within very few years, you can see changes that are drastic, like bigger parts of the brain, smaller parts of the brain, plasticity, like really big changes. So that's one thing. But you're asking me about genetics. Yeah, the brain has evolved in the last 100,000 years uh, such that it gives us a new part that wasn't there before. Our ancestors, the apes, don't have this part. And with this part came a lot of functions, like we can think about the future and imagine things that aren't there. We are pretty much the only animal out there that can do that. We can actually ask ourselves, how good will vanilla ice cream with uh, olive oil taste? Mm -hmm. And we don't have to try it. We can just imagine it won't be great, and we just not make it. So we can do something that no other animal can do, which is create simulations of the future, live through them, and decide what to do. Well, how do we know they can't think that? Well, We're we just don't. judging on their actions, right? Yeah, we judge their actions. We don't know that they can't do that, but there is no kind of ability that we uh, can look at in them that simulates ours. So you have kind of a pragmatic explanation for everything. Like when I think, oh my God, Moran, I'm so, I felt so connected to you. I thought about you and you just texted me, hmm. right? People like this universe is connected I mean, so you think that's all bullshit. There's just, like, we just think of those events. We don't think about the million times I thought about you and you weren't there. Yeah. Is that pretty much it? Yeah, I would count all the times that I didn't call you, all the times that I called you and you didn't think about me before. I would count oh, all the exams. Miserable would be, way to yeah. live. You're killing my... I think, I mean, I actually, so I think, so, you know, I have, like, a long answer that uh, I would not bore you that speaks about why we love the sunset. Why the sunset is romantic. Sunset is beautiful and people loved it and it's actually all physics. And it takes... Too long to explain, so I won't bore you with well, that. Well, give me, like, the cliffs. No, you can't just tease me. I mean, I like sunsets. I prefer a sunrise. Usually I get laid, and then I watch the sunrise. Sunset, I'm tired. I'm grumpy. So the, the short cliff note version is that our eyes like to look at infinity. And when you look at infinity for a few minutes, our brain thinks we're sleeping, and it creates all the hormones that make us feel euphoria. And we think, oh, I must really like this guy that I'm sitting next to because I'm feeling good. But it's actually all the fact that we looked at infinity for a few minutes. You think looking at sunsets, looking at infinity. Yeah. Well, that's like the ocean too, right? Yeah. People enjoy the ocean. Yeah. People, if you if you sit anywhere. I fucking am terrified of the ocean. And you look at something for a while, you right. will feel good in your body and you will immediately think, oh, I, guess I really like this guy. And it's all physics. Now, in a way, it's terrible because we just took the Love most... away from millions of people. <laughs> but I think it's most beautiful. I think that's actually making us feel that the world is even more remarkable when we know what's making us feel the way we feel. So, but you think, because um, I'm, look, because um, I talked about failing earlier, I, I have never been in love, love, and I find that people, I mean, I love my kids, but that's because I feel like I'm, that's genetics, right? So I don't fucking kill them. That's why I, it just stops me from doing something drastic. But love between people, I just think it's fear-based, right? And people are kind of just yearning for some sort of fear of, you know, about being alone. And you believe in true love or what part of the brain is that so, okay. nonsense activated in? Here's something that will resonate with you. I think that uh, our brain, the more we look at, at, at these properties, we learn that the brain really likes communication. So I think the brain actually benefits from talking. So you and I right talking, our brains are happier. Okay. Our listeners are listening right now. Their brains feel a little bit better because there's communication, there's information. The brain really likes information and processing. You don't like to be alone. In fact, think about people in prison. 
people sit in prisons full of rapists and murderers and killers and still right. the worst punishment is to take them and put them alone in confinement, right. solitary confinement. That's right. the worst punishment. because you go our, crazy, right? Yeah. Our brain really doesn't like to be alone with no information, with no communication. And in that sense, I think that love is a way for the brain to get even more time and quality communication with someone that really is interested in making you behave differently, think differently, and process information in a way that is positive. So you think it's more of a cerebral... I mean, it's all cerebral, right? Emotions yeah. are cerebral. That's so funny people say cerebral because emotions are in the yeah, brain too. Exactly. No no emotions in the heart. Yeah. And I tell my kids emotions in the heart, but you know, but it's <laughs> like nobody draws like, I love you with a brain on it. That would be a better... That's a nicer greeting card. I think, I think humans invented words to help us explain the world. So we separate feelings from thinking, but the brain doesn't know it. The brain doesn't know that this one is a feeling, this one is thinking. All the brain knows is there's processes happening in the brain and there are fires uh, of neurons. That's all. We call some thinking and some that are buried deeper inside, we call them feelings because we have less control over them. And some that happen totally under the hood, we call them unconscious. Subconscious, yeah. or right. Unco but just okay. humans made words for that. Oh, interesting. Okay. So you say, okay, so feelings and thoughts are the same same th even in terms of the quality of the firing and the everything looks the same so the brain doesn't know the difference but we i think call feelings those types of processes that we can't control so feelings are something that you don't really have access to you don't really say you know my mom is sick i should feel sad right now let's activate sadness turn sadness on for like 10 minutes okay enough let's turn it off now let's feel happiness well, that's what actors do well, so they have better access in a way. They, they learn how to yeah, do that. Yeah, they can trigger. Yeah, they can actually activate the system. And most of us can do some of it. Like most of us can actually bring thoughts into our mind that will make us angry or suppress thoughts and make us feel better. So we learn that. That's actually one of the unique things to humans that when we're babies, we can't do that. Babies just feel things right on the spot. Or men in their 40s. <laughs> or men in their 40s. Right. And, and somehow when we're turning into adults, we're learning how to control our feelings to an extent. So we had some access to their feelings. We can somehow suppress or uh, amplify them, but not fully. Actors presumably are even better than that. And you can't control your thoughts either. You can decide, for instance, that you're going to raise your left arm and it happens with 100% accuracy. You can raise... Okay, uh, well, that's more of a, like an action So most command, of the things are in the front, right? yes. Motors and some thoughts that you can actually conjure. You can say, I'm going to think right. now, solve a problem with mathematics, mathematics and actually solve it. You can do things that uh, are coming from the front part of your brain that have full access to and somewhere in the middle of the brain there's parts that you just don't have full access to interesting so people that can master th thought and say i'm not going to think about this i'm going to think about this and it actually mm -hmm. works mm -hmm. or meditators right exactly so meditation, meditation is, is, is practicing that so part of meditation i think the, the part that people likes and that's not spiritual they practice controlling their mind they just sit there and they say okay let's see how long i can hold one thought and it takes usually seconds before it milliseconds i runs yeah, away and then you say okay let's try again and try again, and try again. And at some point, you get to a level where you can maybe control your thoughts for 10 seconds, some 20 minutes, some one hour. And that is the magic of, of controlling your brain. And I think in that sense, meditation is beautiful because it allows you to play with your mind. So you think those people that, um, like in India, when they're walking on hot coals, they're able to uh, block the pain sensors in their brain by choice. Like, how do they do that as opposed to like taking an anesthetic? You know what I mean? How do they manually auto-anesthetize themselves? So that's pretty much the same thing. The pain center is also buried somewhere in the center, and it's really hard to get to, and pain usually just happens. We right. don't really control. We don't say, let's make pain, and let's stop the pain. It just happens. But everything in the brain connects to the front where the executive functions are, where the you part, the part that controls things. And if you practice enough, you can actually learn to suppress pain. You can actually learn to suppress emotions. The same way you can feel sad and still go to work and hide it so no one else knows that you're sad inside. You can actually feel pain, but suppress it so it doesn't really come out. And some people practice that so well that they can actually even hide it from themselves. 
Well, yeah, like 99% of the population, right? Where it come, but it comes out. You can't really hide it. It somehow erupts in another way. That's where I feel like science hasn't hit that yet. You know what I mean? All the other actions we take that are manifestations of the pain, kind of living beneath the veil of consciousness, so to speak, you know what I mean? It, it comes out. So, so I, we, I think we agree on that, that uh, no action in the brain just disappears. It does something. It so lives maybe, there. Yeah. Yeah, maybe there's going to be some outcome. It's too kind of vague for us to understand because everyone has different outcomes and we don't really know what happens. There's a lot of psychology research on that that says, mm-hmm. hey, if you suppress the thoughts about bad things that happen to you in your life, it will come out. Maybe in your dreams, maybe when you are older and you experience some, some trigger and it's going to come back. It comes but, back, yeah. But we don't really know how to kind of really explain that or uh, more so predict that. So I think for now we kind of wait for it to be... It's interesting to me because what you were saying is so interesting where you're saying the pain sensors are the same as the feelings that like, yeah, sometimes if I'm sad, I will work on myself and change my emotional state. Mm-hmm. But the pain... I feel like if that's just a chemical, you know, if the pain sensor is activated, how do I stop that neuron from firing? So first of all, there are ways chemically to stop pain, like this anesthesia. Well, yeah, of course, but if I don't want to take any external chemicals. There actually are people with a disorder that they don't feel pain. There's famous That's dangerous. Painting. They keep yeah. running into walls and cutting themselves in glass. Exactly. They, they, they really do. But how do you do that? Like you said, the coal guys that walk on the hot coals. Like, how do they do that? First, so it's... it's uh, training of the brain so first you just touch something really really hard and you feel the pain and you try to hold it for a few more seconds and in doing so you actually not just train your body you actually train your brain to feel the pain and sustain it so you actually create a connection between the front of the brain to the middle of the brain that says hey when i feel this thing let's know that we can do it for a little longer and you do it again and again it's not different than uh, what we do with athletes so we have uh, so it's endurance but not saying it's not painful just saying i can handle the pain longer it's exactly. different yeah so so in, in a sense the, the part of the brain that we call pain is active it's just that there's another part that kind of suppresses this feeling that says hey i'm still feeling what something but i'm not uh, not letting it become dominant me. yeah it's not going to stop my action that's Think what about, i guess you maybe you're not stopping the action you're not pulling your hand away i'll give you an example that exactly that that is uh, more kind of easy to understand for a lot of people in the world of not pain but a uh, control and it's come to sports so the first time you go to run say uh, one mile mm-hmm. it's going to be painful after 500 i don't know meters and then you have to maintain something and maybe your legs are telling your brain stop but your brain tells your legs continue and at some point you either break or not the thing is we can look at your brain right now and see what part of the brain was the part that told your legs continue and what part of the brain was the part that says I'm stopping and then we can say hey tomorrow we're gonna have you run a mile again and your legs got better but also we can actually tell you that your brain is getting to this point where it feels that it's interested in stopping and just by telling you that we can ask you to tell your brain to maintain this kind of control for a little longer and we actually can train people to run better and longer not just by training their legs but actually training their brain to tell their legs keep doing it, even though it's painful. Do you think that at some point in life there's going to be, instead of people popping pills, there'll be like stimulants on the brain tissue that are going to be whatever, if it's sexual arousal or if it's let me run longer in the marathon or if the pain suppression center? I think that we already have most of those in the labs and just a question of ethics right now, do we want them? So we have the ability to make you not feel pain. We have the ability to make you uh, sexually aroused, you said. We have the ability to make you... um, want things you may be not interested in right now. So we can do a lot of things right now and we don't know if we want that as a society, but we have the ability to do a lot of those things. Right. So who's deciding? Who are these holier-than-thou people that are like, the you know, so not st- stopping it from propagating? Me being preachy right now. Preach I th- it. I think that uh, it's society's 
choice right now. Scientists will give you the tools and then it either will become something that Silicon Valley will just adopt and will use it and it's going to become mainstream because someone will just want it or we can stop it and decide that we regulate it or not. So here's what I say to the audience. There's an election coming in a few weeks. I don't know when this podcast is going to come out, but I see a lot of people talking about small things, but no one asks politicians, what is your view on whether we should allow AI to uh, be in our life? What's your view on things like letting people use those complex neuroscience solutions to solve problems and let the companies do that. And I think that that's something that you should ask the politicians because it will be in your life. And if we don't stop it before it happens, it will be something that will be too late to stop when it's out there. Is there a global organization that monitors these things or every kind of country decides or who who decides to not... Is there regulation in not some way? Not really. So, so here's an example. Look, we study dreams, right? And one of the things we find in our studies is that we can actually change your behavior when you're sleeping. You can go to sleep, smoking, wake up not interested in smoking, which means I can actually do something to your brain that will make you change your behavior over a 90-minute nap. So far, we just... Is that like hypnosis, you mean? No, we actually go into your brain when you're sleeping and we use smells to induce a thinking in your brain in specific moments. And then we change something by inducing a different smell and you wake up and you have a different thought. This is with the electrode inside the brain? No, this no just smells? Like yeah. you're giving me smells while I'm sleeping? So what we learned is that uh, in, uh, say, seven hours sleep, there are windows where the brain kind of thinks about life and decides how to live life the day after. It's a moment where your brain assesses your personality. And if we find this particular moment in your brain and we spray a smell into your nose, it will make your brain assess whatever the smell triggers. So if we spray the smell of nicotine into your nose when you're sleeping in this right moment, your brain will think about smoking. And if we spray right after the smell of rotten eggs, which is a smell that's known to be bad and right. not wake you up, your brain will associate sm smoking with bad. Like and a it, negative reinforcement. Exactly. If you do it at the right time in the, in the, in the night with strong concentrations, but only in the right moment, you will wake up not wanting to smoke. You will have negative associations, but you wouldn't know where it came from. How do you know when that moment is? It's something that scientists have looked at. They tried all kinds of moments, and they figured out it's a moment in stage three called slow wave sleep. That's the moment that if you do it, it actually has this effect. And the point that we started to make before is that this means that the person comes to the lab, takes a nap for two hours, wakes up, and suddenly they don't want to smoke. Now, smoking, we think, is a good thing to change, so people are happy with that. But right. at the same way, I can make you come and buy Coca-Cola. And now we're starting oh to think, hey, that's a bad idea. And right now, we realize that it's working. We publish a paper, and that's it. The paper is out there now. Maybe we give a TED Talk, but that's about it. That's that's all scientists do. But then someone will be like, I'll give you $90 million to exactly. use that proprietary... Right. So then comes a company and says, hey, there's a new way to make people buy more Captain, Captain Crunch. Let's do that. That's a great cereal, though. <laughs> I mean, I have no problem with telling people to buy Captain Crunch. It's one and, of my favorites. That one in uh, Count Chocula. I don't think they think they discontinued <laughs> that one. And then that's it. So, so and right now there's no regulation. So this company will do that. And maybe in 10 years, some politician was going to say, hey, it's a problem. Let's do a hearing and like uh, stop but that. But what about all these like people with addictions? Why aren't they just treating them en masse, putting them all to sleep for 90-minute naps and saying, stop taking heroin, stop hitting your spouse, whatever? Yeah, I, I agree with you. So it's, it's relatively, I mean, we don't know. We, we didn't try all of those options. So we don't know if it's going to work the same way in all of those right. options. But now someone has to try that. And the question is, who's going to sponsor that, do it, and and so on. And that's why I think we're going back to the audience. Someone needs to demand that. So someone needs to say, hey, we heard that there's new solutions. We need your uh, kind of district uh, to right. put that as a priority. And so far, no one does it. But scientists kind of, as I said before, are speaking to themselves. So no one knows. So here's uh, where your audience can say, hey, we want that. I don't know how active my audience is going to be with, <laughs> with stopping AI. They're probably like, shit, great, less <laughs> beer. Um, but you have to also be make sure that the... Um, the person is actually dreaming about what you want them to be dreaming about. Like if they're assessing their personality, what if I'm just dreaming about whatever it is, Twinkies, 
I'm just using cliches here, but how do you know I'm dreaming about, oh, I actually smacked my son upside the head because he stopped, he kept touching the TV remote, which I think is completely justified, if I do say so myself. You know what I mean? So how am I going to know I'm assessing that? If I thought I was okay doing it, I'm not going to be dreaming about it. So first, it's a lot more complex process because we have to map things when you're awake. We have When you're right. awake to learn how your brain looks when you think about your son or your remote and so on. And then when you go to sleep, we actually right. activate the same things. The, the fortunate thing is that this thing that we, allows us to change behavior actually happens in a different stage that, than dreaming. So dreaming happens in stage four, we mm-hmm. call it REM, and the change behavior happens in stage three. So it's totally different things. If I, if I spray the smell of nicotine, it won't even make you dream about anything that has to do with smoking. But what about the physical? So you're saying there's no such thing as a physical dependency. It's all in the brain? Well... Well, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like you can stop someone from wanting to smoke, but if the, the body's like, like if you're going through withdrawal or if it's heroin or something stronger, it's not just the brain saying don't do it. You know, it's like your body needs it. So in a way, the belief among many scientists is that most of those desires are actually happening in the brain. Yes, you, your, your stomach tells it that you're hungry, but your brain can actually make it so much different that you might even not know that you're hungry. Uh, there are studies on, on dependency, on, on addiction, and they show that many times we can overcome most types of addictions by changing your brain. That's really extreme, but actually it's it's the case. Um, if you think about heroin for a second, mm-hmm. if your mom gets sick and she goes to a hospital, effectively she gets heroin. The doctors would give her something right. that will actually help her. We call it heroin, but it's actually the most pure version of heroin. And she doesn't leave the hospital being an addict. Mm-hmm. She actually goes and she feels better. So something about the knowledge that it's actually addictive helps the addiction itself. So It enables it? Enables it. It makes you want it more. It, it, now you, you see that the feeling that you had is actually positive. And you, so, so the addiction isn't just the chemical aspect, but also the desire. And we can control the desire. And that's the So do you component. think that claim that like alcoholism is a disease, do you agree with that? Or do you think, nope, sorry, guys? It is a disease of the brain. So the desire to drink alcohol is a desire that happens in your brain. It's a binding molecule in your brain that wants it. It's not that your liver wants more alcohol. It's that your brain likes ethanol and makes it so that it actually changes so the behavior. So some people have that in their brain more than others? Yeah, I think that I think that there's brains that are more prone to liking ethanol and changing more. And the reward that comes... You think that's genetic? It's, many of it is genetic, and some of it is actually changed over life. So if you start giving the brain a lot more, say, alcohol, it actually creates more, more sensors, more, we call them binding uh, mm-hmm. locations, but it creates basically more room for alcohol and then you need even more and then you need even more and even more and at some point you need so much that it actually can't be satiated. But the brain actually changes to allow that. But what do you believe that, um, this is what I'm not, if, every, if we looked at brains from like birth, okay, mm-hmm. how much is genetically embedded in there and how much is like if we had a room full of brains, we didn't know, you know, from all over the world, mm-hmm. And we gave them the same exact conditions. Would they? How di- different would they develop? That's a bigger question. Too big is, for the pot. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> this is the stuff I think about. Absolutely. So I think that a lot of scientists are actually playing with this question, nature versus nurture. How much of you is already there when you're born? Right. And right now, I think the belief is about 50-50. So 50% of your personality is there when you're born. It's part of who you are. Mm-hmm. And 50% is something that you learn when you're a kid. And you establish that based on your parents, based on your childhood, based on your friends, environment, and so on. And it gets locked to an extent when you're six, seven. So your personality is pretty much there and it's stable for the rest of your life. Okay. So if my six-year-old is problematic, he's just going to be problematic for the rest of his life? Well, problematic is a definition of society. That's like, true. <laughs> he's delightful. Maybe he's like a genius and just in 20 years, people would start calling a genius. But right. right now, he's definitely, whatever behavior he exhibits is going to be the behavior he's going to exhibit throughout his life. Now, it's not to say that you can't change. You well, can, some of it's developmental, right? You can, exactly. You can manifest different things. You can be an extrovert who behaves like an introvert. You can be a mm. person who's very neurotic who behaves the opposite. So you can 
exhibit different behaviors, but your kind of guidelines, the, the core of who you are is going to be pretty much stable for the rest of your life. So these neurotic types, what kind of a symmetry they have? Their left side is just huge and their right side is like the size of a peanut? So that's a bigger question that unfortunately we have no good answer. And, okay. But I think that... That uh, is unfortunate. But Ron. I'll tell you, that the, the, the good news is that uh, it's actually something that we're looking into right now. Like right now, like people in the lab are doing it right now? Like right now, two miles from here, uh, there's a fantastic scientist who's looking exactly What's at his name? Her, her name. name. Sandra Good. Matz. See, what the fuck was wrong with me? What's her name? That's what I was <laughs> trying to say. What's her name? Sandra Matz. Sandra Matz? Yes. Okay, your names. You guys, surfs and mats, and it's unbelievable. What is up with, um, this is a completely racially biased question, but I went around some of these labs, a lot of Indians... And a lot of Israelis. What is that about Indians and Israelis that are attracted to this neuroscience stuff? I'll tell you about the Israelis. I think that Israel is a small country with no resources. Okay. There's no gas. There's no uh, No oil, natural resources. Nothing. Right. So you have to rely on your brain. And there's a feeling in Israel that uh, the world is kind of big and we're small and we have to fight our way with whatever we have. And that leads to a lot of innovation. Also, there's an army. Every Israeli, by the time they're 21, has spent at least two years in an army mm -hmm. where he or she are being told constantly what to do. They're right. told so when they're out, they're like, fuck this. Yeah, we need to do something. And they, they know how to work in a team. They know how to take orders. They know how to not quit until the deadline emerges. Right. So all of those things are really useful for science. Interesting. Interesting. Um, let's talk about dreams for a minute because I, I, from what I read, I read a little bit. That there's two kinds of dreams. You have dreams like in the REM stage and the mm -hmm. non-REM. And like the non-REM is more realistic dreams. Like I forgot to go to the bank and go to the ATM, which I always fucking do. <laughs> and then the REM is like I'm flying on top of a hippopotamus, you know, whatever. What is that? Is it different areas of the brain or is it just more activity? And then what do they, do dreams serve a purpose? So, okay. So the biggest question that you're asking is what are dreams for? And that's something that scientists are baffled by, but finally we have some answers. And, and first we should say that... Uh, even if they're for nothing, they're for something in a sense that we, the awake we, really cares about them. So even if dreams mean nothing, if I wake up and I tell you that I had a dream about my, uh, you know, favorite uh, band that you hate, you will say, how could you dream about this band? It's awful. And we blame the awake person for his or her dreams, even though they are not responsible. If they dream of like a former lover. Right? That's yeah. the worst. You I tell your spouse, I, I dreamt about Candace, you know, get the fuck out. Exactly. Right? So in that sense, we, it doesn't matter if they mean something or not. We think that they mean something. We have stories full of people who paid prices for their dreams. So now we can actually look at what they mean. There's a few theories. Uh, there are a few theories, but uh, I think the leading one right now is that dreams are our brain's way of simulating futures and uh, practicing them and seeing if we like them. So if you're thinking, maybe I should go back to Mobile, Alabama, or maybe I should stay in New York and have a great life here, mm -hmm. you really don't know what to do. Your brain actually overnight plays a movie. And in the movie, you're the lead character, and you're now living in Mobile, and you have a great time there. And then you have a dream where you're in New York, and you have a terrible time there. When you wake up in the morning, you have no memory of the dream, but your feelings about Mobile or the feeling about New York actually are there. And suddenly, you have a better way of choosing. Oh, wow. So I don't even remember working this shit out. Exactly. That's creepy. So like someone's taking over my brain. The good thing about it is that it's the ultimate virtual reality. Like you actually sit there. Can you say that again? It's the ultimate virtual reality. Ultimate virtual reality. Thank you. It's the brain going through an experience and while you're dreaming it, it feels as real as it gets. So that's the beauty of that. Like, I mean, sometimes I do remember, I remember I was dating this guy, one of, you know, 10,000, and we were having problems. I felt like he was drinking too much. It might have been a sex addict, which at first was fun, but after a while creeped me the fuck out. <laughs> and then I had a dream, and the dream was a really bad scenario. Now, of course, you don't, it hasn't happened yet, 
But when you wake up, it feels like it happened, or it's a premonition, as they say, mm -hmm. where it's like, this is a warning from my body. My body's telling me, stop. So you're giving your brain credit in a way. Like, so let's talk about intuition for a minute, but you're giving your brain credit for, like, knowing more than you do or telling you the truth that you're afraid to realize or so something. I think that what, you, what, what your story tells us is that if you actually live with this boyfriend for a while, you will get to experience everything. What your brain does, it says, hey, let's save the two years now of right. agony. Let's just create a simulation. Now, it might not be two. It might be a simulation that's really bad, but it would take whatever is in your mind right now, create a movie, you're the lead character, you will feel something, you will go to an emotion, and that saves you the two years of agony because you felt it right now. And that's the beauty of simulation. Now, it's not necessarily the truth of what dreams are for. It's just one theory, but it's the leading one because it actually makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting because it's like taking your wisdom of your years, right? Mm -hmm. And so you can listen to your gut. Exactly. I, do you listen to your gut? Well, it's not really in the gut, but yes. Yeah, what part <laughs> of the brain is the gut? Actually, the gut is the only part that actually has some neurons in it, so the gut does well, have right, a brain. Well, right, when I get anxious, I feel right yeah. in my stomach, and then I got the runs. Yeah. I don't want to get graphic, but... But I think for the most part, when you talk about like simulating experiences in the future, it's actually in the frontal lobe. In the frontal, that's where all the action happens, right? Yeah. The frontal lobe, but it's all connected. Yeah. It's all connected. It's all connected, but that's the part that's like new, 100,000 years, and human, and tells us a lot about the future. So I know you've also studied um, free will, yeah. which is something that philosophers have debated forever. And we like to think that we decide what we do, but do we? So uh, the question whether we decided voluntarily or not is still up for grabs. Mm -hmm. But what we definitely know right now is that it happened before you experienced that. So if I ask you if you want to have the steak or the salmon at mm -hmm. a restaurant and you say the salmon, and I ask you, when did you decide? You say, when I said salmon, we know that this wasn't the case. You know that in your brain, the answer salmon existed for seconds before you actually knew that you wanted that. Somewhere in your brain, something already decided, and you get to know about it just before you use it. But in your brain, the answer already is there. And it's seconds before you experience it. Wow. Okay, but that's still me. Right. So, so it's still free will. It's just the free will itself is happening you a little bit You didn't get the decision yet. Yeah. And we don't experience it this way. We so think that it's So if someone wants to get divorced and they get divorced when they're 50, could be their brain decided to get divorced when they're 40 and they just didn't act on it? Absolutely. It could be that it's there for a while. Most brewing. people feel that way, right? <laughs> Usually when something happens, we go back in our mind and we tell us a story that we actually decided long ago. But we don't know when it happened, but we definitely know that it happens before you said it. Well, that I think is, is helpful when people say they didn't listen to their gut, they had a bad feeling and they went forward anyway. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like that was your body telling you make a different decision and you didn't listen to it. There's actually a lot of evidence that uh, if we are able to listen to the inside of our brain, so to speak, to the parts of the brain, that we will know usually the good answer that we like a little before. And there's actually a now scientist who will put electrodes in your brain and will tell you, hey, your brain tells me that you want A. I know that you say you want B, but if you want to know, your brain actually thought that A is the best answer. And whatever happens afterwards made you choose B, but you should know that your brain wanted something else. I wonder what that is then. What part of the brain is choosing B? So ultimately, there's a lot of... Uh, parts that come together into a choice and even the part that wanted B, so to speak, isn't the full story. Uh, maybe it's driven by emotions and ultimately rational right. part chose. Right. Like certain people really just make very dry decisions yeah. without any sort of emotional thing. Yeah. Is that a women and men? Is that a gender difference? So, so far we're looking into that and it doesn't seem to be just gender. It seems to be that uh, every brain has a personality. But it's very, very specific. So you might make decisions better in the morning. I might make better in the evening. Someone might make better when they're hungry, some when they're full, some when they're tired, some when they're awake, some when they're mm -hmm. uh, very when they're alone with people. So there's a lot of things, but we can actually profile your brain, figure out exactly what's your best brain state, and then let you make choices only in that state, and you'll make better ones. Is someone studying narcissists? Tons. 
because there are there are a lot of them out there. You know, there's a, a there's a, a prize being given every year right around now uh, to scientists. It's called the Ig Nobel. <laughs> it's the prize for research who's stupid but actually serious. So kind of like t- taking the idea of the Nobel Prize, but the ignorance Nobel. Okay, so give me an example. So a few years ago, the Nobel Prize was given to someone who studied Nazism and actually... Uh, Narcissism tried- or Nazism? Narcissism. Okay. And tried to devise a questionnaire that will help you figure out if you're a narcissist. So usually questionnaires have like, you know, 10, 20 questions mm-hmm. and you answer, you know, right. sometimes. That. And they figured out that you have to just ask one question of a person in order to know if they're narcissists. And the question is... Are you a narcissist? Absolutely. And narcissists say yes, and everyone else says no. So it's very, very easy. So wait, narcissists say they are narcissists? Yeah, yeah. They're so they happy admit with it? it? They're happy Because I it. know a lot of narcissists, and they do not admit it. They're completely unaware. Try, try, ask them. They tend to uh, say no, yes. No, I've tried. <laughs> but they say no, because that has a negative connotation to it, and they think they're, like, amazing and the best in the... You know what I mean? Why would they admit to being a narcissist? I think that the so the, the, the way the study suggests is that people actually are, are kind of uh, owning it because they, they somehow find it beautiful to be one. Really? Yeah. I don't know, but I think they don't know the term. Maybe they think they understand the term. They think they're just looking at a pond at your reflection. <laughs> There's a difference between vain and being a narcissist, right? I mean, that's patholo- like narcissist personality disorder. That's pathological. Yeah. That's not just like mm-hmm. I'm self-centered. That just goes way yeah. beyond. Lack of empathy. Lack uh, of empathy. So that's different areas yeah. in the brain. Have they found that those areas are less active, the areas of empathy and compassion and, and Yeah, so and that, I mean, I don't think people looked at it neuroscience-wise yet, but I think that for all of the attributes, if you look at the kind of psychology encyclopedia that says which... Mm-hmm. things make for disorder. I think that for most of those things, we can actually find in the brain the lo- location. So we can actually see that you have no empathy. We can see that you have uh, other exhibition right. of that. Is it So I guess at some point, it's going to help with dating where everyone's going to have like a brain profile because now people answer questions based on what they think they are mm-hmm. as opposed to maybe how they act. Mm-hmm. And this way, if you put the, you know, you check their brain activity and say, you're not very empathetic or you're really, your hemispheres are super aligned. It's like good tits. You know what I mean? Like she's got a great rack. He's <laughs> got a great set of hemispheres. He's aligned. You know what I mean? There is a thing, a company that already offers some kind of version of dating based on your brain or biology, something like this. There are ways to actually find your mate based on your immune system and biology. Oh, you send like a swab of your immune system. She sends hers. What, do you both have herpes? What do you mean your immune system? So I think that... Uh, they're in most animals, they actually choose each other not based on their looks or their brains, but how they smell. So two dogs, they kind of find each other. Right. Well, they smell each other's rectums. I mean, where, how much you get? Okay. So uh, humans think that we're much more different. Like we think that we actually choose by, you know, No, I smell humor. people's rectums when I meet them. I'm like, great, this is going to work out great. So I think that the, the evidence suggests that actually we do use some uh, olfactory cues right. to choose people. And now there's a company that says, hey, let's try to see how far it goes. And it seems to actually go pretty far. It seems that if I give you the T-shirts of 10 guys... Uh, the t-shirts of guys mm-hmm. that were asked to smell to a lot of it's probably unconscious too right yeah you would kind of pick the guy that uh, ultimately and say hey smell all the t-shirts and tell me which one you find the most uh, you know attractive you would actually find the guy that ultimately if you look at the immune system and, uh, and all kinds of parts mm-hmm. he would be the best match for you but what do you mean best match from immune system well, how do, how do you com- do compatibility based on immune I don't you would understand have the, that. The, the healthiest babies oh okay Okay, so he's like from a perfect family, not, or we both have, like, we met, our baggage doesn't. If you have, if you're allergic to this, he's not, and together you're more likely to have a baby that won't be allergic to this. Oh, wow. So, uh, so I wish that, okay, okay, so if we chose mates based on smell, we'd have less genetic disorders? So one, so, so now humans are much more complex, right? So, so if you, if I tell you, hey, this guy is the best match for you because he has the best immune system, you would say, no, no, but I want someone who's actually a sense of humor and that's not written there. So humans think they want much more. But the reality is that there's evidence that uh, uh, relationships that are based on someone setting you up 
without you even meeting. Someone, your parents tell you, mm-hmm. you should marry this guy, actually last longer and they, lend, they end up being much happier. So fixed marriages are actually uh, arranged but marriages. But why is that? Because people actually, I think, doubt less and they have a lot. Uh, we live in a world, so now, now I'm talking about... But that's not connected to the smell. We, we veered off a little bit. Yeah, so... so if something's so, fixed, not like, oh, this guy's immune system's aligned with yours. They're just like, no, he lives next door and we know his parents. Yes, so smell is a, a part. So is sense of humor and so is information. There's a lot more, a lot more right, out there. But, right. but I think that we're starting to understand that there's a lot more that goes into relationship than what we just thought before, which is... I'm going to choose myself. So it turns out that there are studies that show that if your friends chose for you, you're going to actually be happier. If you chose without knowing the person, just by some kind of information mm-hmm. that he or she will give you, you will actually do better. If uh, someone will force you to be together for a while, you will actually grow together much better than if you kind of kept doubting it. So so the world of Tinder, where you did date someone and immediately kind of say, hey, but there's another guy on the corner. Yes, that I that's terrible. It actually makes us less likely to commit to someone that's great for us. Just of because course. we constantly judge them and one mistake is out. But, so, well, let me ask you a question. From an evolutionary perspective, it makes sense to me that every immune system would have like an olfactory profile mm-hmm. and then you would... Chew by smell. You'd meet that person. You'd smell them, mm-hmm. and if that smell was that you know, and that new profile was optimal for you, that's who you would choose, and your brain would tell you to like that person. It should work, but women use the pill. If you use the pill, it actually kills your sense of smell. So you actually. Well, thank are, God I'm not in the pill. How would I pop all these babies out all the time? So that's a, that's a, a mechanism that women we invented. To, oh, uh, interesting. So it so, fucks up their ability to find yeah. a partner if you're on the yeah. pill? It actually simulates the Get pregnant. off the pill, ladies. So here's a practical advice. If you're on a pill and you're dating a guy and you really like this guy and you say, hey, this is the guy. Get off the pill for about smell a month. Smell him for about a month. Yeah. And then if he smells good to you after a month, you should actually, you know, procreate. With this is guy. That, are you serious yeah, right now? totally serious. Wow, that is some practical shit. Yeah. So there's, so there's, so we know some things about this. And so there's a study by a colleague of mine in Israel where he brings people to the lab and he uh, tells them, hey, I'm going to have you sit in the lobby for a second, then we're going to call you to the room and start a study. But actually, the study already began because what they do is they shake their hands while they wait. Mm-hmm. And what they show is that within the next five minutes, every person who sits there smells their hand. So we all use handshakes as a way to rub the smell of each other on the arm and actually see if we're compatible immune system-wise. People so you ask. want to like marry your research assistant? So what they did is they tried really, really nice. They had some person wear a glove and then people don't do it. And they had like a gay couple shake their hands, a mm-hmm. straight couple. And they see that it's only if the other sex is matching your preferences. Is Oh, wow. So they really, they really didn't control it. But the bottom line was that what they showed was that people actually use this alignment of handshakes to see if the immune system are compatible. And they all smell their hands. So that's well, in the day of Purell, you also kill that. Right. The over-sanitization. Mm-hmm. You have your microbe that mm-hmm. you're deleting. Yeah. So. Wow, this is fascinating shit. I know that I uh, I spoke in, t- in my research. I talked to another Israeli fucking researcher, Noam Sobel. Mm-hmm. He does a lot of olfactory. And he told me a fun story. This is a fun little tidbit. That men, when they smell a woman's tears, their testosterone levels go down. Yeah. What does that mean? It makes them more compassionate? It softens them? So what's it just funny gives about them no boner? What does that mean? <laughs> what's funny about Noam's study is that when they ran this study, they actually asked people to come to the lab and participate, and they only got women. So they asked people to come and cry in the lab, and only women agreed to come. So they don't know if it's only well, women. Well, men can't cry in cute, right? <laughs> they're like, no, I'm too much of a man. So, so now they're trying to think to do the same thing with men to see if it's just if it's the tears or if it's the women, uh, because it's unclear. Oh, interesting. So if a man cries with another man, but he's not sexually attracted to him, it might not have the same effect. Yeah. So we don't know. Basically, we don't know if tears make everyone around you lose the testosterone, Soften? or okay. it's just that women's men. Because women, I have testosterone too, right? Yeah, a lot less, but yes. A lot. Well, mm. I don't know, right? It depends who, what man, what kind of pussy you're talking to, or how you know how amped up I am on the day. Um, wow, this is fascinating shit. Uh, tell me. Um, do you find 
that you are, you, uh, let me rephrase that. All this work on the brain, are you able to function in daily living without being in your head or looking at everything as a potential, uh, you know what I mean? Are you able to be in it and live authentically and in your relationships and intimacy? Or are you constantly like cynical and be like, this is only this neuron firing, this is this, this is my limbic system, this is, you know, how does that work for you? So there's a saying among scientists, it's not research, it's me-search, which is to say that most scientists somehow connect everything they do to their lives, so am I. Okay. Uh, I can't turn it off. It's always there. But I can tell you that, unfortunately, most scientists can give you long talks about how they should do things, and then they make the same mistakes like everyone else when they come to... It's like to, therapists, right? Yeah. They're good at getting, giving <laughs> advice, but they're shit at yeah. living by it. So I think that it, it affects you in many ways, the language you use. So I use, I guess, different language to talk about my emotions or different language to talk about my choices. And I probably spend a lot more time pondering those questions when I'm just by myself waiting for the bus. But at the same time, I think when it comes to actions... The same mistakes, same problems, same challenges, same successes. Do you think that people that, I'm not going to circle back here, this is interesting to me, people that are very creative and happy being alone and can spend years, like artists and writers, mm -hmm. do you think they're able to do that because they generate a lot of their own content because they're creative? It's almost like having another person there. Not like a split personality, but you know what I mean? When you're like a big painter like Delacroix or someone that painted on the rooftop, didn't talk to anybody, whatever that that's how you're able to be happy because you're, you're generating? So there's some studies on, on creativity that try to look at what makes people creative. And there are two extremes here. There's some people that do the best work they can do when they're alone entirely, no stimulation from the outside world. The entire thing comes from their mind. And there are some characteristics of their personality and what comes with that. And there's others who are the opposite. They need a lot of stimulation and they need a lot of content before they go. So it's not clear that one is better than the other. Right. Uh, we used to... We humans used to think that uh, kind of the more desperate and miserable you are, the better. Now there are studies on what we call hot streaks that show that actually it's not the case, that some people have like years of creativity and uh, it's not their uh, best years of other things. So there's a lot of research on that that kind of uh, comes to suggest that everything works. What you're asking me for like practical things. So what we know is in the context of sleep, for instance, that uh, people that sleep better are actually more creative. We know in the context of communication that people that are able to uh, uh, kind of create content at the end of like thoughts are actually doing better. So it's not enough to just be creative. You actually have to sit down and write it down or sit mm -hmm. down and actually, so there's a lot of kind of practical aspects to that that, that are helpful. And we know that altogether uh, interaction helps creativity. And the last thing we know is really imp important is constraints. And that's kind of counterintuitive. We know that if you tell a person, come up with a game right now, 30 seconds come up with a game, they're usually not able to come up with anything. But if you tell them, come up with a game that has triangle and a line, suddenly they have 10 ideas. Because in a way, just kind of framing and closing the mind into, onto a... Parameters? Yeah, helps the brain kind of fixate. And that's helpful to a lot of creative people who say, okay, if I give you all the options, you have nothing. But if I give you limited options, you start kind of being creative. And you can even always lose the kind of parameters and come up with your right. own. Right. Oh, interesting. What is your most exciting discovery you've made that kind of puts you on the map? They're like, oh, okay, that's surf dude. So I think that what I'm known for is the work with the patients and the kind of open brain surgeries. And within that, the ability to actually look into people's mind, find their thoughts and project them on the screen. So we actually find a person's thoughts when they're awake. We see where your mom's thoughts are, where your dad's thoughts are, where the Big Ben thoughts are, or the Eiffel in Paris. And then you... Close your eyes and just imagine the Big Ben in London and we can read your mind and project on a screen what you're seeing. So we actually sit there and we just show a movie of your thoughts. Really? Yeah. Wow, we didn't get into that. That's fucking amazing. 
Where would I be able to read more about that or watch more about that? Or is it in process now? It's not so published yet. This was published in a journal in science called Nature, which is a very popular yeah, journal. Yeah, Nature's big. It's, uh, and, and it was a number of years ago. So if you read those academic journals, you will find that there. But I think that by now I did my best to speak about that in so many venues and so many popular places that I think that if you just look my name, you'll find some evidence that and some movies of that or some kind of intuition More on about surf it. thoughts video. Perfect. That'll that'll happen? That will work. Uh, amazing. So you have another TED Talk coming up? Yes. There's a few. You're two. just churning them out. Unfortunately, required now. they have now. Ted X and they have Ted Ikes and they have, right, they have Ted, they used to have just the big Ted and now they have yeah. all these like little bastard children Teds. Yeah, there's there's a lot of them and I think that uh, uh, for each audience type, you find his or her talk. So Ted caters to, I think, uh, more, I would say, uh, savvy tech people. Okay. Uh, there are some who want more playful and there's conferences that are more into that. There's some that are longer. Google has an entire kind of one hour version of, of those same talks that are more deep. Uh, and How long is TED? Usually 15 minutes? 15 minutes. And and it kind of gets to the point quickly and it usually also has a style, right? You have to kind of end with an uplifting message about oh the world boy, and you have yeah. to tell a personal story. Kill and me you, now. Yeah. So, there's, so there's a style to TED and not everyone likes this style. Some people actually want uh, more of the science and they want an equation there. So that's, I would say, right. another pop, pop, uh, uh, popular right, conference right, right. is just about that. So I try to kind of balance between all of them and uh, I don't have a favorite but I will tell you that uh, the ones that uh, I like the most are ones that I prepare the least for well spontaneity right what yeah. part of the brain is that I think uh, it's all uh, over for me it's a uh, it's that I'm a little bit no more nervous and I so I'm thinking while I'm speaking rather than just rehearsing and playing it out oh nice now do you do you find is there a are there more women in science these days or is there a lot of me too shit going on there or just everybody's that unattractive nobody gives a shit I think that uh, I would say I'm guessing now I think academia was actually on the early side of figuring out that there's some problem there so there were a lot more women getting into science before it became a thing a year ago so I think the last 10 okay. years already showed some difference in academia I think academia is no different than the rest of the, rest of the world. As in, it you're going to have egos and slime balls yeah. and inappropriate shit. All the things that you can imagine. I think Fun. that I think that academia is no different. It's it's a microcosm of our world. I think academics, because they're a little bit uh, more in their mind, they tend to analyze it more and they tend to pay attention a little bit to things. And so I think that in that sense, they're a little of a precursor to what's happening outside. And in that sense, I think that they're doing a good job. But you see all the shit that you see everywhere else happen in academia as well. It's also interesting, though, because maybe this is a cliche, but I find a lot of scientists, you know, obviously unlike artists or whatever, they're a little more sexually repressed. They're more in their head. They're a little on the spectrum, maybe. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. they're just used to just kind of looking in front of a computer. They're not as extroverted in life. Or maybe that's changed. It's maybe I'm wrong. So or maybe if you're in Argentina, they're all having fun and <laughs> merengue tangoing around. Definitely different styles. U.S. and Europe and Asia and there's there's right. a bit, but altogether I think that academics kind of uh, pride themselves in being in their mind. They they you know there's like a, a lot of uh, cliches about them you know right. not needing to be as uh, kind of attractive or, mm -hmm. or uh, in right. other than their mind. Their so, brains so, are beautiful. You know, Einstein's uh, hair got uh, a lot sexy, of... That's sexy, though. That's fucking hot. I, I'm working on the same... Uh, I can tell. <laughs> <haircut. laughs> so in that sense, I think, I think that for a while it wasn't the case, but the world of now public talks that actually require scientists not just to do they their work in the lab... put themselves in front of a crowd. ...makes them, I think, be more aware of that. So they become a little bit more, uh, first of all, 
appealing in terms of like their usage of language right, and their right. way of Snazzier thinking about their dress. Yeah, they start to kind of think about their work in the context of say, hey, why is it important also and how can I communicate it to everyone else? Why would the world care about it? It became a little bit thing and I think it's good. I think that the fact that the world is caring is good. Is TED a for-profit organization? Well, I think... I, I think that They charge money for those talks? They charge money. I think they... they I, I don't know enough to tell you, but I think that they say that they're non-for-profit, but there's money... There and but it's they definitely pay a rich organization. They don't pay the speakers, but I think the the attendants attendees the attendees have to pay pay and there's and all this TEDx makes definitely a lot of money because you know right. they have like a copyright or, or whatever license. They own. <laughs> I wonder if they um only choose the more attractive speakers. You know, what I mean, if you're like a brilliant scientist but you're looking like a troll, they'll be like, not so great on YouTube. <laughs> Let's get the hotter guy from whatever. So uh, I I'm just saying I I can't prove it. I think. Uh, but you think I'm right, right? A little bit, a little I bit. So I, I think that of. I think that so. I definitely think that they they use uh, the best person who can actually uh, get the highest viewership. The viewership, right? Yeah, yeah. it's all corrupt. And that's in that sense, I think they're not. We're gonna start putting George Clooney just to sit on stage. <laughs> you know what I mean? Let's put him in the corner while the guy's talking. That's amazing. Well, Moran, you have been amazing. Thank you. Uh, I've been. Del- I learned a lot here. Uh, I'm gonna cry every time. No, I'm never <laughs> gonna cry in bed ever again. And I'm gonna dream to work all my shit out. And uh, I'm going to start work, you know, maybe try and walk on hot coals and see how I can lift my endurance. That's exactly what I meant for. That, take Good. That's, that's that. all. That was my takeaway. Yeah. Thank you very much. This is Rayland Casper White signing off. Mm-hmm.